Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guests today are Nikolai Morar and John Holmes. Nikolai Morar is an assistant professor of philosophy and environmental studies at the University of Oregon. His interests include applied ethics, the philosophy of biology, and recent continental philosophy. Marar currently holds a Robert F. and Evelyn Nelson Wolf teaching professorship in the humanities through the Oregon Humanities Center. John Holmes is the director of ethics for Peace Health Oregon, where he oversees and implements clinical ethics consultation services. Holmes is also a pro tem instructor of philosophy at the University of Oregon. Morar and Holmes are teaching clinical ethics during winter 2017. Morar developed the class with support from his Wolf professorship during the summer of 2016. Thank you both very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So my first question is, what is clinical ethics, and how does it relate to bioethics and medical ethics? What is what is this clinical ethics that you guys work on? Yeah. Well, you know, I, as I'm hearing you just ask the question, it makes me kind of chuckle about maybe we were be a, being a bit presumptuous in calling it clinical ethics, because there's a lot of sense of clinical out there, but, you know, really for us in this class, we've tried to construct that around the, uh, the clinical practices that play out within uh, the modern medical uh, acute care setting. And so we have uh, a sense of clinical here that really talks about hospitalization, talks about uh, a bit of the, the outpatient stuff as it comes up here and there, but uh, it's really around uh, the physician-provider relationship with patients and uh, the, the kinds of decision-making that take place at the bedside is one of the ways in which that takes place in the hospital setting, but could be within the clinic setting as well. And uh, again, you know, there's, there's a lot of different senses of clinic out there, and maybe we were presumptuous, but we're really focusing on, on modern uh, medical care in that sort of acute sense. Um, you know, every now and then some other kinds of things may come up, but what do you yeah. think about that? Um, so I, I completely agree with John. I think what was interesting for us was, uh, given both our training, where you know I'm a bioethicist, or and I worked quite a little bit on medical ethics. So I always felt that, as a field, medical ethics group, you know, is a fairly new field, a little bit more than 40 years ago, and in its narrow conception, it has always kind of focused on what's the doctor-patient relationship under what kind of conditions, you know, especially ethical conditions, we can uh, do research on human subjects and so on. So those were the big kind of questions that bioethicists have always had in the background. And what is really interesting about this clinical ethics in a way is, I would say it's not that we're losing a little bit of the theoretical component, but we're trying to see actually how those theoretical tools that bioethicists have developed for the past 40 years genuinely pay, play a role in sort of real life situation at the bedside, right? So what does it mean, to, you know, bioethicists have been thinking for a long time, what does it mean to provide informed consent, under what kind of condition informed consent obtained? And then it's amazing when you do this bedside work to realize that actually informed consent is a fantastic tool for an ethicist, but it's also ideal a little bit in a sense. It's really hard to obtain it. It's you know, you struggle when you are in a real day-to-day -day practice. So I think what that's that's an interesting relationship between the more I would say theoretical, you know, field of bioethics, and then a little bit the more I don't like the word applied, but probably the 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 the, the direct application or the direct integration of those values within the bedside uh, practice uh, at PSOL is just fantastic. One of the thought I had too, as I listened to Nikolai, is that you know this is really a 
an ethics uh, that's rooted in profession mm -hmm. and uh, rooted in professional service practice, if you will. Um, so I think that distinguishes it pretty, uh, pretty well from just the broader biomedical ethics. Not that there's not other senses of profession out there in terms of uh, the broader sense of it, but when we're, we're talking about service professions now, they're really uh, handling human lives in a real direct way. Um, I think that's the, the sense of clinical ethics mm -hmm. that we're really into, uh, interested in uh, pursuing in this class. And we really structured that around the, the provider-patient relationship in so, some ways. So tell us how this works in the class. So how, how is the course built to accomplish this, this balancing of the theoretical and the pra practical? So the, thanks to the Wolf, to the Wolf Fellowship, we had a little bit of time together with John to really think about w how we would like to design the course in such a way that we provide, that we bring this bedside experience, or at least we bring this more hands-on experience for our students. Because for a long time as a philosopher, I've been sitting in my class as I will, and I will build up case experiments, you know, or thought experiments, and I would say, what if, what if? And, and there is a sense of abstraction. It's not that they're not informative, but there is a sense of distance from the problem. And what was really interesting when we designed a class with John was to say, look, we want to provide to our students theoretical tools. We really think they are important. Uh, they are, those are conceptual tools. Those are value discussions or value debates. And at the same time, we want to see how physicians work with those tools in their own practice. So for example, on a Tuesday, we talk about conditions of informed consent. And then on a Thursday, we really go to Riverbend and we're having two physicians coming in. And they're telling us what is informed consent for them, how they can obtain it. One of the things that is not obvious up until you talk to physicians, for example, we tend to overlook the important familial component of informed consent. We really believe that it's just about an individual as to whether or not they agree on a procedure or on a treatment. And the thing that comes out of our experience in talking to physicians is to realize the extent to which family is such a significant component of that process. So I think the students are seeing, on the one hand, they are getting the theoretical tools, and on the other hand, they are getting the realization of how those theoretical tools can create a space for medicine to function with its, within certain kind of ethical bounds. Um, and I think too what's been uh, the real structure, uh, th one of the pieces that we really uh, wanted to hardwire into the class was knowing that students don't always have that experience with what it looks like in practice, we really wanted to bring them to the setting. And so you hear Nikolai talk about how we structured that with a Tuesday in-class mm -hmm. session at the U of O uh, where they can kind of get a little bit of the theoretical background for the, what the issue is that we're going to be diving in f into for the week. Then they come to the practice setting and they uh, meet with uh, providers, physicians particularly, um, take a tour through a unit, uh, for example the ICU, many folks, uh, many uh, people in the community, let alone students, haven't uh, seen what the insides of a ICU really look like. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a pretty interesting experience for the yeah. first time. So we think that that lends uh, a lot of value to the students so that they can actually see the that sort of practical problems that come up when you're trying to do something like informed consent within that kind of setting. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned informed consent. What are some of the other topics that have been, you know, in, in built into the course? 
So we, the ways in which John and I structured the class was a little bit part of what he mentioned at the beginning, was trying to understand the ethical conditions or the ethical debates surrounding the doctor-patient relationship. So we started a little bit more on the physician side and because we wanted to understand what's the nature of a clinical judgment mm -hmm. and how, what are the conditions or especially what are the kinds of uncertainties that physicians are facing and how they factor in those uncertainties within their ethical decisions. Mm -hmm. Especially because medicine, it's again, it's not a perfect science, so mm -hmm. they do deal with probabilities, with statistics. and. It's a very interesting kind of a relationship. So, for example, we had you know emergency physicians coming in mm -hmm. and telling us about the need, and especially when you factor with the clinical judgment, you factor a time constraint, like in cases of emergency. It was really amazing to see an emergency physician coming in, talking about this. And then we slowly moved from a series from the clinical judgment. We moved to also on the patient side. We talked about. Uh, before we even got to end-of-life care, we talked about do not resuscitate orders, mm -hmm. we talked about what is death and what does it mean to die and what's the relationship between, you know, defining death and, for example, organ donation. Then we talked about informed consent. Then we talked about something that it's equally important to informed consent, which is surrogate decision-making. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. What does it happen when you actually cannot get consent? What kind of consent are you supposed to? Then we talked uh, also a lot about end-of-life care, um, and th that was one of the interventions that we had from, from David Barnard from OHSU. And we'll be finishing this coming week with basically uh, 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 medical research on human beings, or at least human subject mm -hmm. research. And then part of what I really wanted out of this relationship with Peace Health was to bring, to develop a more, uh, to bring also a, a religious component mm -hmm. to our conversation, mm -hmm. especially because, you know, for most of our conversations, we were within a secular kind of ethical framework studying in. But Peace Health is, is a Catholic institution, so I really, I, I wanted very much to, especially because we have John, I really wanted our students to be exposed to how does this religious component sort of modifies our understanding of what healthcare is and especially how does this religious component infuse a series of values within the, the medical practice. Did they meet a hospital chaplain or uh, somebody like that in the course of the course? Not quite yet. We, yeah. uh, we have opportunity for that down the road. We've really tried to structure it around uh, the f physician-patient relationship mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and to see how that practice uh, plays out. Um, and so I, I think uh, hearing you talk, I, I was uh, thinking about the organ donation experience we had with students in particular and how much, uh, how much I think they got out of that. Yeah. Um, that was part of our unit on uh, what is death. And uh, we actually had an opportunity for students to uh, model, um, to uh, attend a, uh, a, an organ donation. Not everyone was able to do it, mm. um, but we were able to get a few of our students into the OR mm. to experience that and mm. uh, kind of see how that plays out. Um, you know, very careful decision making around how we're declaring someone dead in that particular instance. Um, you know, certainly given our, uh, our, our religious affiliation as an institution, we want to be very careful about that. Um, but, you know, there's also a goodness that comes from organ donation that's important for uh, the greater society to know about. And um, I think this really gave students an inside look at the kind of um, good that can come out of a really tragic situation. And uh, it's, it's something that is getting uh, uh, growing attention throughout the nation uh, in terms of uh, the, just the overall lack of uh, resources uh, in terms of the, the organs available right now. So. Um, it was a pretty eye-opening experience, I think, for our students there.
It was an amazing experience. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about the reaction of the students uh, to that session or to uh, any of the sessions. How have they been responding to the class? I think students have had that eye-opening experience of, wow, I didn't realize it was really like this. Hmm. And uh, in particular, I think about them walking through the ICU yeah. and seeing people on ventilators, ventilators. and yes. uh, unable to speak for themselves, completely vulnerable. I mean, people when they come into the hospital are vulnerable just by definition in some way, right? They don't have uh, their normal abilities or faculties about them. Um, they're stressed out, they're, they're anxious, uh, they're maybe waiting on a prognosis or maybe even a diagnosis um, uh, for their ailments. Uh, maybe it's a trauma situation that brings them into the hospital setting. And uh, just, I think you feel that when you're in the unit. Um, and that tension is there and the students, I think, were just um, surprised by that in some way that this is how it is. Now, you know, we try to make the environment as calming as we can, but there's only so much you can do given the, the really difficult, uh, you know, tragedies and uh, illnesses that people are facing. So, hmm. um, you mentioned that they've they go to the clinical setting and they spend time with doctors. So you said that you, they've spoken with emergency room physicians. What other kind of doctors have they spent time with at, in the hospital? Well, we really tried to set them up with a couple of uh, critical care docs yes. in particular. Uh, we had one of our uh, leading uh, critical care docs sit with them and really talk to them about DNR status, for example. and Do not resuscitate. Do not resuscitate or do not attempt resuscitation is an alternative way of thinking of that. Um, they, they really got an inside look on what it sort of means to be on a ventilator mm -hmm. and uh, really understand that. Um, also, just the sort of difficulties with end-of-life decision-making in that setting as well. We had a hospitalist critical uh, care uh, physician come and speak with them as well, um, and how that uh, particular physician, you know, really deals with that kind of difficult end of life decision making, when there uh, is not an ability to really get someone through a, a really uh, tragic either illness or, or trauma, um, and I think that was pretty eye opening yeah. as well. Um, there's always these little nuances and subtleties with regard to how to use language effectively without being misleading, mm -hmm. without being uh, coercive. And I think what was one of the big eye-opening things for students was just the carefulness with which these physicians have these conversations. And uh, that's what I find personally just so intriguing about uh, clinical ethics mm -hmm. in, a, in a practice setting like this is just the amazing amount of values that are really at play within a given situation and how careful one needs to be to really attend to all those values at any given moment. These are the challenges of the practical versus the theoretical. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned, Nikolai, that um, David Bernard had come. Tell us about, you had also brought some speakers yes. down to the U of O. Tell yes. us who they were and, and uh, uh, what did they talk about with the students. So again, I, th I think what makes this class and what gives this structure to the class is the extent to which the fellowship through the Oregon Humanities Center has made available a series of funds for us to bring in new speakers and to sort of create a dialogue with Peace Health. So, I, I was very interested in, um, in, in not only in bringing a series of specialists to the class, and we, we brought Lynn Jansen, 
Um, she, she's part of the faculty body at the Center for Ethics at OHSU up mm -hmm. in Portland, mm -hmm. and she does amazing work on questions of informed consent in a clinical setting. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it was the perfect candidate for us to invite Lynn to campus and to talk to our students as to how informed consent should be structured in a clinical setting and also present some of her concerns as to, uh, especially with respect to um, uh, some clinical trials and how sometimes consent and clinical trial might be at odds uh, given certain kind of biases or cognitive biases that human beings tend to harbor. Um, Could you be a little more specific or is it impossible? Yeah, so, so, so what's really interesting is, uh, uh, and, and especially early in early trials, uh, there is, uh, early trials in, in, in the medical practice, there is no explicit benefit to the patient. Mm -hmm. Part of what people really try to understand is they are trying slowly to establish the efficiency of a certain kind of product. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting, what Lynn has seen in bodies of, uh, uh, in certain populations of people participating in those studies is that although they were told that there is no specific benefits, they will still assume that they will be doing better than not doing that. Mm -hmm. So Lynn, for example, has labeled this kind of optimism, she calls it an optimist bias, mm -hmm. that although we don't have any kind of good evidence to make that kind of inference, we mm -hmm. continue to believe that you know, participating just in the trial will make them feel, feel better or cure them a little bit more. Or, uh, so it was a very interesting kind of realizing, again, what kind of cognitive biases human beings tend to display in those moments when they have to make informed decisions about uh, you know, their, their lives. And especially some of those people are at the end of their lives, mm -hmm. there are no other options. Right. So it's really important to make sure that they make informed decisions given that they have a limited time left with their, with their loved ones, so. And what was so nice about her uh, research in particular was that it really just illustrates a really uh, important piece that we're just trying to get across to students when we think about, um, in theory, what it means to consent to a research trial. You know, it's very cut and dry <laughs> in the sense that, you know, of course you want to be informed, but here's this really uh, interesting set of popula uh, population of patients that you know, sort of desperate in some ways, mm -hmm. given that uh, there's not a whole lot of other options medically for their uh, for their ailment, and uh, how that sort of human factor just plays into this unrealistic optimism, potentially, uh, in their decision making, and then raises a whole bunch of interesting questions about what, what ought we to do about that, mm -hmm. um, and how ought we to reconstru reconstruct, potentially, our, our research to account for that. Really uh, fascinating to me, illustration of the practicalness of, of playing out something in theory and, uh, and the importance of knowing um, what those practical limitations are. Mm -hmm. And I would, just briefly, I would add to that, uh, you know, informed consent very often and when it was built as a tool, as an ethical tool within a medical practice was sort of highlighting this hyper-rationality, right? That human beings somehow, you know, most of the time, most of our behaviors tend to be the reflection of, you know, uh, of, of really careful, thoughtful decision-making. And part of what it really captures, Lynn's work really captures, the extent to which, you know, those, some of those biases that we're probably largely unaware of tend to really creep into some of our most significant decisions. Mm -hmm. So it's really important for us to be aware of them. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we had David Barnard, who's yeah. one of the leading specialists in the country on ethical issues related to uh, end-of-life care. 
and it was a fascinating conversation. And, and then our last guest will be this coming week, uh, a, a junior faculty from the Portland State University and new bioethicist, Brian Sweek, who does a lot of work on questions of human subject research and mm -hmm. questions of justice and especially access to new drugs. And that's going to be really interesting for us as well. So those were, in addition to our physicians, those were also the, 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 some of our guests on, on, on our Tuesday lecture on campus, mm -hmm. basically. So tell us about some of the challenges uh, that you face bringing the students into the clinical setting. What kind of things did they have to do? How did how did that get worked uh, out? Yeah, no, it's you know we we treat them like and we have a student experiences program and uh, we treat them uh, almost as though they're uh, an employee in some ways. They've mm -hmm. got to really vet them. Uh, they've got to get a series of vaccinations. They have to have a TB test. Um, and they have to uh, work through. We have a particular test on confidentiality and HIPAA compliance, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so we had to make sure that students were aware of our internal policies around uh, keeping information confidential and uh, and uh, some other just basic policies related to uh, you know how to go about oneself in a healthcare setting. And uh, yeah, it wasn't too bad on them, but uh, yeah. we did we did want to make sure that we were able to have open discussions with uh, our students about actual cases unfolding mm -hmm. and uh, in order to do that we really needed to make sure that we got them uh, cleared uh, through our normal process of just kind of vetting who's on the hospital grounds and who's not. Mm -hmm. so. And they're going into operating rooms, they're going into the ICU. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it was interesting to me as a, you know, I, I'm sort of, although I did quite a little bit of work in bioethics, but it was interesting for me as an academic, as a faculty, you know, to really end my syllabus with basically what it's an annex as to how are you supposed to take your TB test. Mm -hmm. And this was part <laughs> of the syllabus. It wasn't something independent of the syllabus. So I felt like, wow, I'm finishing up a syllabus with, with you know, take a TB test, go and do those things. So it, it really <laughs> felt like we, we really came to a really perfect, really good agreement with Peace Health on, on what are the conditions for our students to find themselves in a hospital. And I think what's, what's sort of, what remains a little bit invisible uh, is the extent to which a hospital is a particularly codified space. Mm -hmm. You cannot find yourself too easily in a hospital if you don't <coughs> fulfill a very specific role. And that was a lot of John's work on and, and what made this collaboration successful to kind of find a way to create this role for our students, given that <coughs> this health, you know, is not a teaching hospital, mm -hmm. uh, how to find a space for our students to bring them in and, and also make sure that uh, they sign all the paperwork, that they have access to those current cases going on. And we had fabulous discussions about ongoing <coughs> cases that, that John and the ethics team at Peace Health was yeah. we're discussing at that time so it was really fruitful for that tell us a little bit more about the the way that the collaboration worked so did you run the tuesday classes and you were in charge of the thursdays well, was it as straightforward as that it's kind of like that yeah, a little bit a little um bit. <clears throat> you know i know uh nikolai has just been amazing in terms of just really uh taking the burden of all of the the mechanics of the course itself and uh you know he's just uh i'm always impressed when i get together with my colleague and <laughs> He has an amazing wealth of uh, knowledge around these areas, and uh, he really takes the burden of constructing the, uh, the lectures for the Tuesday sessions. Um, <coughs> you know, I have, uh, I think part of our, um, uh, our origin story, if you will, is that <laughs> we, we, both, we both taught the same class. I, I, Nikolai had been teaching in the past <coughs> and was out of the country or out of the area for a little bit, and 
uh, U of O asked me just to step in as a one-time to teach the same class yeah. uh, biomedical ethics. <coughs> and as a result of kind of getting to know each other through that experience, we kind of dreamed this thing up a little yeah. bit. <coughs> I mean, you know, we should tell you, but we got also to this collaboration in part being led by one of our students and seeing the student growing. Uh, right. One of our students, Laura, took a class with John and then did quite a little bit of work with me. And she kept a sort of a, an ongoing internship with, with Peace Health. And we, we've, I, we, both of us were amazed by seeing how this you know, philosophy major, anthropology major student was just growing out of this yeah. experience that she had in a hospital. Uh, and, and it was a fascinating experience, and I felt like, wow, it would be amazing if we could do it for more than one student. And, yeah. and, and this is, in a way, that's the fruit. We're doing it a little bit more for more than one student. It's still yeah. hard for making it for, you know, larger populations, but uh, it's How many students are in the class? Right now, that we kept the class at 12. Uh -huh. uh, so we had a long conversation with John as to... Especially because one of the hardest things, if we really wanted to visit during our class in ICU, physicians will have to break that into very small groups. Mm -hmm. You cannot have 20 students just starting walking through an ICU. It's just mm -hmm. impossible. So we wanted to keep the class as small as possible so that our physicians would help us or when they would give us a tour, they will be able to break us into small groups of three or four students at most. So we kept the class at 12 at this time, and we, we have 12 students at this point in the class. So t um, I assume that along the way you talked about the kind of status of the American healthcare system now. Can you say a little bit about how that got played out in the class? Well, yeah, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't know that we necessarily we spoke about the Affordable Care Act, but yeah. I do think one thing, I appreciate that question, because I think that what students didn't understand is just the sheer structure of medicine mm -hmm. in, in, its, in, in the way in which um, there's sort of this uh, um, uh, interesting sociological study might, one might do of the, the, the how medicine is actually practiced. And uh, that, I think, was also eye-opening for students to just know that, you know, you don't have, in the, like in the old days, uh, your family care doctor follow you into the hospital setting anymore. There's a completely different structure for how medicine is actually provided. And uh, them getting more aware of that was really, I think, a neat eye-opening experience for them. Because it raises its own interesting complications and its own ethical issues. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you have this uh, huge uh, burden for the hospitalist physicians who are just serving in the hospital uh, to get to know their patient extremely quickly in order to be able to have uh, a, a meaningful sense of informed consent. Um, back in the day when you were a physician that knew your patient quite well, it would be much easier for you potentially to tailor uh, an informed consent conversation in a way that what really resonated with that particular patient. Now the physicians don't have that uh, ability as well is because they just don't have the long-lasting relationship with these, with these patients. So I think that was one yeah. structure of medicine issue for them that yeah. was kind of interesting. And you, just to sort of add a little bit to John, and, and you, you can't imagine, right, that what's really amazing between informed consent and one of the things that comes out that is so significant in, in, in the practice of medicine is this notion of trust. And how most of us really believe that actually trust really builds with a little bit of time and over time, and it's a notion that it, um, and most physicians in hospitals don't have that time. 
So how can you really start a conversation with someone from, you know, when you have to switch from a curative to a palliative form of care with someone that you don't know well enough, you don't build enough trust? And it's, that was a fascinating conversation that the students were exposed to. Yeah. Well, we're out of time, so let me just say this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you both for doing this work. It sounds like an incredibly innovative and valuable experience for the students. And thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thank you so much for your work through the Oregon Humanities Center. I mean, people need to know that it wouldn't have been possible without your efforts. So, a thank you. A total pleasure. I've been speaking with Nikolai Morar, Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon, and John Holmes, Director of Ethics for Peace Health Oregon and Adjunct Instructor of Philosophy at the University of Oregon. They are teaching clinical ethics during winter 2017. Morar developed the class with support from OHC's Robert F. and Evelyn Nelson Wolf Professorship in the Humanities. Thanks so much for watching.